On this podcast, we talk with rural mavericks, futurists, and researchers to raise bold voices for rural people and places. I'm Caitlin, producer of the show, and I'm asking you to do your part. Support the Rural Futures podcast by leaving a review, which helps new listeners find us, and become a sponsor by visiting ruralfutures.nebraska.edu slash podcast. Too many times people jump to a solution and just listen to what they say. We need a strategic plan or we need a new process or we need a, a working group that collaborates. Wait, you don't need those things. What's the problem we're trying to solve? What is the question that we're trying to answer? Rural Futures, the podcast where we connect thought leaders and doers at the intersection of technology and what it means to be human. Every episode, we talk with entrepreneurs, researchers, and achievers to create impact for generations to come. And now, here's Dr. Connie. Welcome back to the Rural Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Connie. And joining us today is Deb Westfall, CEO of Toffler Associates, a future-focused strategic advisory firm. Deb, tell us a little bit more about Toffler Associates Sure. So Toffler Associates is a uh, strategic advisory firm that uh, helps helps our clients actually create better futures um, by understanding what's driving change, helping them plan through that change, and then and then finally helping them adapt their their organization to be successful. Well, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that and some of your work is specifically with strategic advising. But I want to get more into Deb a little bit here because there are some very interesting things about you that I think our audience would be curious about. What do you do for fun? Oh, fun. Well, right now I'm, uh, I'm really into running and um, I have I've learned to have fun with that. Um, I'm actually going to be running in the Chicago Marathon in uh, less than a week. So you're doing the Chicago Marathon but I think you also have a big climb coming up in February. I do. I do. I've actually uh, planned a trip to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in, in Africa. And I'd like to know, how does this bring joy, but also how does it make you better at what you do? I need to be in constant motion, um, I, whether that's mentally or physically or um, maybe even spiritually. So running and hiking and, you know, learning and just, just staying in constant motion brings, brings gr- great joy. And that really fits nicely with what I do uh, professionally at Toffler Associates. It's, it's perpetual connecting dots and learning and meeting extraordinary people and learning about their lives. And that brings great joy. Well, obviously, serving as CEO of Toddler Associates, you're in a a high-profile leadership position. So tell us a little bit more about yourself as a leader. You know, it's it's evolved, and I have an engineering degree, and so my in my younger years, it uh, it was more about process and making sure the structure was aligned and making sure that the, the strategy was there. You know, over time, as I've matured as a leader, all of that is needed, but that's not the priority. And what I have found is that the priority is is people. If you organize around them and you organize around their strengths and their hopes and 
uh, their desires. It, uh, the organization is much better for that versus trying to make sure you've got everything lined up um, organizationally and then, and then put the people in there. I feel like the way you lead and your philosophy around leadership matches so well with your work because I know in our pre-convo and in the form you submitted before coming on the podcast, you stated, we must understand that while it looks and feels like we're in the midst of a technology revolution, we're really experiencing a human revolution. Expand on that a bit. Yeah, so it's easy to focus on the technology. And and yes, there's so much technology that's maturing and advancing and that we we lose sight of the implications to people and humanity and society. And this revolution that we're we're in is is human. The technology is the fuel that is connecting us. It's allowing us to find people like ourselves to to gain voice to be activists it is allowing for humans to rise and rise above the the technology and, and use that technology as more of a platform for society and humanity for our company, if you look at our, our business cards, we don't have titles because we play different roles at different times. There are times when I'll have a millennial or a Gen Z leading a project and I'm there to make PowerPoint slides. They're my lead. And, and so you hit on the roles, right? If you see some of the projections about the workforce being by 2030, 80% of the U.S. workforce will be freelance. Well, freelance, it's not necessarily a title. It's not a position, you know. So these traditional organizational models that we have where we bring somebody in for a slot, it has a title, it has, you know, a job description that's very limited, and we cram a person in there, we're only getting a part of them. How do we unleash that? And how do we take advantage in the opportunity, both on from a company perspective as well as the individual, to bring the whole person? You know, our work around human-centric organizations is going through these models and, and where do we need to go to bring that to the forefront, to bring people to the forefront, the, the whole person, not just the, the slice that maybe was their education or a specific uh, experience. Well, I know your work and research have unveiled what you call future shocks. So how would our future shocks and how are they gonna continue to change and shape society? Wow, there's so many you know, future shocks that are, that are happening. Um, one is what we call the power of balance. And that's really that shifting power structure that is moved from from more traditional entities to non-traditional entities. Take Elon Musk, and, you know, he's a controversial um, (laughs) fellow, and and he gets himself into trouble. But, you know, here's this young billionaire that connects with uh, some some Silicon Valley engineers, and uh, they have a vision, and all of a sudden, um, their influence moves uh, an automotive industry that has been, you know, pretty stagnant, if you would, for, for decades. And if you look at where the automotive industry is now, 
they're placing their money on autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles where they wouldn't have done that 10 years ago. And so, you know, it's moving this, this power of balance, moving from the traditional entities to non-traditional entities to people. The GoFundMe platform allows for donations to be collected uh, in matters of weeks um, for the, the Las Vegas shooting victims. You know, it gives hope and, and you know, some, some relief, if you would, to those victims in matters of weeks where the government would have taken months or possibly years. So that is a future shock that says just because you're a strong organizational entity, you may not always be in power. It really may be individuals or groups of startups that, uh, that maintain that power. I think it's a great message for you know people to really think about. I think for so long we've been in a society where you know it seemed like a few people decided what happened, right? And I, I'm not saying that power still doesn't exist, but at the same time, power has been given to people like never before. And getting these interesting partnerships together, thinking boldly and moving boldly and and with conviction can really change the world. And developing these platforms that give people a voice, especially a collective voice, is really amazing. I mean, it's a great time in history to see how this is going to shape the future. Yeah. And, in you know, their infrastructure that's being put in place around the world, uh, you know, the communications, information technology, um, we've got more satellites going up, we've got uh, fiber being laid, we've got cellular it's it's allowing everybody to on the on the planet to connect and through social media there's good and bad there but the connection to find people like you know ourselves that um can bring that power and that voice is a real strong shift here and and very exciting for the future i think absolutely and i i love one of your quotes if your organization prioritizes age over ideas, it's time for a change. And so thinking about, you know what, this doesn't have to be what it was. It doesn't matter how long you've been around, how much experience you have. There's really this capacity for individuals to make a huge difference, especially if they come together. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting with some of the clients that we work with that um, their reference, if you would, to millennials or Gen Z is, you know, how are we going to manage these, you know, these kids? They're, they're almost out of control. They're very different. Instead of how are we going to use this as an opportunity? Because they see things differently. They, they were born into this digital age. They are looking at things and saying, you know, this doesn't seem right. Why do we do it this way? And for the older generations, they may see that as a challenge versus a, an opportunity to go, yeah, why are we doing it this way? And organizations should see that as an opportunity to, to question and listen to their, that younger generation. Um, it would probably help them move, move forward in a, a faster way that younger generation is going to point out areas that probably don't make sense in this day and age to, to be doing it that way. So it's really an opportunity. It's not a challenge. It's not a chore. It's, it's an opportunity. Thinking about a university and the Rural Futures Institute, how can we look at that and take note and do something about that? And this is even where I have to give 
our young podcast producer or executive producer, Caitlin Ideas Props and her team, they push me to do things I would not normally do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm even getting ready for the podcast. We had this photo shoot. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I'm, you know, Gen X doing a crazy photo shoot. <laughs> They're making me you know, pose and, and look at the camera in ways I wouldn't have imagined. But you know what? It turned out great. And I'm so glad that they really were like, yeah, we can do this. It'll be awesome. And it just makes for a great team if you can harness that diversity and, you know, the differences and really harness the innovation that comes out of it. My son is 29. And, and while he's starting to, to get older, he's still that Gen X that they're passionate. They care about the world. They care about humanity. They want to solve the problems. They don't necessarily want to follow in, in uh, their parents' footsteps with working 80-hour weeks and, and uh, not taking care of their bodies. And, you know, they, they, they see there's a, there's a higher purpose for why we're here. And, and I just think that is amazing. And it's probably scary for older generation or older leaders um, but it's really going to unleash uh, a new way to lead in a new organizational construct that I think is pretty exciting and, and full of hope for the future. Welcome to Bold Voices, our segment with rock star students from the University of Nebraska who are making a difference in rural. Hello, podcast listeners. I hope you're enjoying the show. I'm Katie Begneski, Production Specialist of Rural Futures with Dr. Connie. And with me today is Raghav Kidambi, a senior management student in the College of Business at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Welcome, Raghav. Hello, Katie. It's good to be here. And it's so nice to have you. Let's start by giving our listeners a glimpse into who you are. Um, I am from a city called Chennai. It's uh, in the southeastern part of India with about 7 million inhabitants. Uh, it's a pretty cool place, a tropical coastline. Uh, we also have one of the largest natural coasts in the world. But uh, apart from that, uh, my connection to Rural and the Rural Futures Institute was through the service ship that I went through this year. So very grateful for that. Yeah, and let's dive into that. We know that you're this urban guy with a soft spot for rural. You know, when people leave rural societies to urban centers, we're kind of losing a huge amount of workforce uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, agribusiness and agriculture and, you know, rural things that are necessary, that are the backbone for the country, and not just in America, but, you know, this is happening everywhere in the world. So that's kind of, it's kind of the catalyst that enabled me to want to participate in something like the Rural Futures Institute and the serviceship that you guys offer. So tell me a little bit about your serviceship experience. So the RFI serviceship for me was kind of a game changer, and it allowed me to experience rural America for the first time, because personally, I've never really been to a rural town. I've driven by it, but I've never been situated in it for more than maybe a day or two. Uh, the people in rural societies, and rural towns, I feel like are very special. The places are special, and I learned a lot of wholesome you know, things from working with them. So for me, that was a, the experience of being in a rural society and learning from people who are fundamentally extremely different from I am and also sharing my experiences with them. There was a lot that we could learn from each other. What advice would you give to students who are in your shoes or who may just be interested in impacting and serving a rural community? That they should just go do it. And a general advice that I would give my peers is that Making use of an opportunity, whether it be it rural or not, you know, is something that you ought to do to grow as a professional. 
but going into a rural community is something special by itself because there's a lot more meaning attached to what you're doing. What your work is going to affect not just you, but literally a community that you can, you get to spend time with on a daily basis. Well, thank you, Raga, for talking to me about rural and urban collaboration and sharing your unique viewpoint on it all, and just bringing hope to students and all of us as we work toward a better future for all. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Katie, for having me on the podcast. I love how you talk about the future of work, you know, through what you do in terms of even thinking about future generations and what they're willing to embrace such as using, you know, AI as a teammate rather than viewing it as a competitive threat. Yeah, I mean, we're already using technology. All of us are using it, whether you have a Fitbit and it's monitoring your sleep or you have, you know, Siri in your car or Lexus in your, your home. We're already relying on technology. And as it, as it advances in this AI and, and human machine learning and autonomy, it's there to help. To me, it's not scary because the technology is so far away from it being to where it's human-like. Um, or will overtake the human. So we need to really think about it as, as peers and, and teammates and, and not as a threat because let the machines do that drudgery and, and then that gives people a chance to be more creative and innovative and problem solve and, and do the things that only humans can do, which are so much more enjoyable and fulfilling for, for people. I mean, getting help with that so it would release that time and energy to really think more broadly, think about personal development and fulfillment, and actually be able to achieve more of that rather than staying in the to-do list. You know, even some of the brain work that people do in in, uh, organizations, strategic planning, um, lots of data collection and reading reports and going through the information, let a machine do that. So the where we start is you got to get the question right. You've got to get the question right. And you've got to do that, that head work before the footwork. And spending time on what is the real question we're trying to answer here. Too many times people jump to a solution and just listen to what they say. We need a strategic plan or we need a new process or we need a, a working group that collaborates wait, you don't need those things. What's, what is the problem we're trying to solve? What is the question that we're trying to answer? And really, what is that question? And when we solve that problem or, you know, answer that question, what's going to be different? And how will we use that? For us, that's where we start. And we spend a lot of time with our clients before we ever sometimes before we even contractually engage with them, to, to get the question right. What is that question? What is the problem we're trying to solve? And then what are the, the hypotheses to solve that question? And then what do we need to do to, to get the data or the right people or the right resources to solve that problem? But the key is getting the question right. As the future evolves, it'll be interesting to see how the technology and the interaction between technology and humanity continues to evolve as well. But another area that you've really focused on is water. Um, recently, I, you know, I read an article that you had published about, is water the world's greatest security risk? 
tell us a little bit about your interest in water and what you're seeing in that space. Well, the interest is across the uh, kind of the critical infrastructures and uh, water is something that we cannot survive without. And major water sources connect across country boundaries or state boundaries and, and they can be used almost as a weapon because of that. Well, I know one of the statements you made in our pre-convo was who's the first mover in water? You know, and who is the long-term leader? But it's not just humans that need it. We need it to create all the technology. And every living creature actually needs water. And no one owns the problem. You know, is this down at the regional level? Is it the state level? Is it the country level? And, And who owns that? What industry owns it? And so that coming to the table again, who is that first mover and who's going to put the resources on the table to start solving this problem? I know that the University of Nebraska has your the water center, which is a start. You know, it's it's cross-disciplinary. You're, you're trying to, to work across uh, the industries, the government agencies. Kind of this uber collaboration is really hard because who's accountable? Who owns it? But we've got to be thinking in, in different, uh, different models for solving these, these really hard problems. And water is a very, very hard problem. As you mentioned, we have a sister institute to the Rural Futures Institute here at the University of Nebraska, which is called the Water for Food Institute. And they're really interested in how do we produce more food for a growing population with less water. Um, we have a water center that's been prolific in its work. But we also have a Nebraska Water Leaders Academy. I actually teach the futuring and innovation piece of that academy so people can start thinking about the future of water a little bit differently and the leadership it's going to take to think about this all in a new way. As you've talked about, I mean, the the policies and structures are old. Um, I think there's a lot of boundaries that were created so long ago you know, there's a historical component that's been very hard to shed, at least in Nebraska. And we're actually only one of three states that even have an academy like that. But at the same time, it is on top of mind for so many industries. I mean, if you're Coca-Cola, for example, water's huge. And I know a lot of companies have started incorporating water into their strategic planning because it is such a big part of their business. Yeah, and so what are you finding? Are you finding it's, it's about process, or are you, are you finding it just about people? Like you've said, it's very complex. And the great thing about the Water Leaders Academy is that it brings together all these different areas of expertise. So you have you know, attorneys, you have policy analysts, you have leadership development um, people like myself, you have futurists like myself, but you also have farmers and business people in the academy. So it's a great collection of expertise, both teaching and learning and all co-learning, you know, with one another. So much of the policy was created so long ago. For example, here in Nebraska, surface and groundwater are sort of treated as separate entities. Well, we know ecologically that's not the case, right? And so who does really own what? who really should lead what, and how can we innovate together to make it different? So it is both. I think policy, it's procedure, but then there's that element of humanity as well. Because we also have challenges around, okay, if I'm a farmer, for example, should I be able to grow my crop over someone who owns a business that takes people down a river in a canoe? 
what is the priority for all of this water? And I think we have great systems in place in a state like Nebraska too, where we have natural resource districts. So I think we've been fortunate that there's a lot of collaboration, but we've also seen some interesting things happen around quality because quantity has been the focus, but now it's quality. And so for example, as quality becomes more of a challenge point, how do we innovate around that? What can we create that's different? And we've seen even some of our rural communities who literally were giving bottled water to their community members, um, especially pregnant women, older people living in those communities, people at risk for their health because the nitrate level was so high. And what that community had to do was actually work with the ag community because Separately, they could not afford to remediate the water or pay for a new system, but together they found a way to make their water system better in their area. Yeah, I had a uh, discussion with uh, the Coca-Cola North America sustainability gentleman, and and he was talking about the issues of of water. And quality was a a huge issue, and it it comes back to their, their brand. Because the, the different qualities of water, whether you're in a small town at a gas station and a, a Coke machine, or whether you're distributing um, out of a large distribution center somewhere in a regional, that quality of water makes the, the Coca-Cola taste different. And, and why I bring that up is not so much of worrying about their brand, but they're worried about their brand. And the power of a, of a company like Coca-Cola is engaged with, you know, solving this problem, both for us in, in humanity, but, but also for their company. So I think that's real hopeful. You know, a part of it is just educating. It's, it's only been recently, what, in the last decade that we've really even dug deep into these these really complex issues to even start to untangle them so that we can solve them. Yeah, I mean, you know, studying more and learning more about this while I've been working with the Water Leaders Academy for, I don't know, the last, I suppose it's been about 10 years. I mean, I've learned a lot, but I am also a natural resources major in my bachelor's degree with a water science emphasis, and I'm a complete nerd in this space. So I love digging into it. You know, it's really fascinating to me to think about just this concept of water and why we do what we do with it. So when you look at other countries, and I think this is where studying what other countries are doing and even traveling, like you've talked about, it's so helpful. You know, they've started using gray water to wash sheep, for example. I mean, why are you using fresh water to clean sheep? Whereas I think here in the U.S., that same thing about cars. Why are we washing cars with really good water? I mean, do they really need that? I don't think so. And I know that's a big expense to to switch a lot of that around. But at the same time, are we going to be on the forefront of this? Are there other solutions we aren't thinking about? Are we going to wait until it gets to a mission critical point before we're willing to make the changes necessary? And it's only one of the critical infrastructures that we have. Department of Homeland Security identifies 18 critical infrastructures the electric and telecom and finance and manufacturing and, and and water touches all of them. So it's not only the problems inside the critical infrastructure, but it's also those interdependencies of the other infrastructures. And you start thinking about this, this very complex lattice, if you would, of, of issues. It really demands different models of, of leadership and collaboration and, and problem solving. 
Yeah, I love Singularity University doing an X Prize on how to pull water out of thin air. You know, like how do we get the vapor out of air wherever you are? So maybe you don't have to dig a well. Maybe there are other options out there that we need to think more broadly about. Yeah, I think that we need more of that. That means, you know, the traditional kind of historical organizations need to rethink their boundaries. Right now, that's where a lot of the brain power is and the resources and the money and the energy. And we've got to unleash that somehow out of the traditional companies. I'd love to know what parting words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Let's not forget that this technology revolution, if you would, or this advancement of technology is is really pushing and elevating people and humanity and thinking about the models more as a human-centric to unleash that power and that energy of, of people within their organizations as well as outside their organizations is really what leaders of the future, I think, need to be considering. And to do that, you got to look kind of internally too and, and overcome your own biases or your own belief systems about how things work or should work or how they need to work in, in the future. So realize this is about people, realize this is a human revolution and, and start with yourself. Well, and speaking of starting with yourself, Deb, I'd love to know a little bit more about something that's been a hot topic lately, and that's women. Women, leadership, and I'm also going to throw aging in there. How do you feel right now as a woman leading an organization and doing amazing things in your own life? How are you seeing the world through the eyes of a female leader? And, and I would imagine you're also th- going to throw that into aging and aging. I, will. Yeah, I totally am. You know, I'm going there. <laughs> I am. I, I am aging. But you know what? To me, this is the best time of my life. You know, I would not go back to my my 20s or my 30s. Or this is this is an amazing time. Uh, we have. We have the ability to, to stay physically fit, to stay mentally fit. It's, it's really an attitude. But also, we need to, to change society's view about what this is. I mean, I am a long way away from giving it up and just sitting on the couch. And I'm in my 50s, and I am better physically fit than I was in my 30s. And I've got higher energy, and I don't see this as an end. And so I think this is, this is a social shift we've got to make. It's not about women just raising kids and getting to this age and, you know, quitting. It's really in time of empowerment. What I think that what you're saying is in sharing is such an important message because it is one of those difficult transitions in life, you know, as well. In, in some ways where I found that, you know, my career as you worked up and did all these things and you worked hard, it's like you, you, you were supposed to wait, like, oh, wait until you're this age, you don't have enough experience. Well, suddenly it's like you turn 40 and then all of a sudden they're, you know, focused on sort of the next incoming group of leaders and emerging leaders. I'm like, wait a second, where was the perfect? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm not sure. And then it's like, well, you know what? It's really up to me to create that. But, you know, I was just at the eye doctor here recently and a couple, I guess two years ago, she tried to get me to switch to bifocals. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And I didn't. So year one passes by. I didn't even get the prescription filled. Year two goes by. I got it filled. I couldn't even find them to go to. 
to the actual appointment. And I just told her basically like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, hey, you know what? I, I may not be taking this well. I want the bionic <laughs> eye that you're telling me about. So what can we do with that? I'm a futurist. Bring it on. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I've already had cataract surgery. So, and I did get the bionic eyes and it's, it's amazing. So it's hard, right? You, you go to college, you get married, you have kids, you, you want a career, you want to raise your children, you want to be a good wife. And somewhere along the way, maybe you, you forget about yourself. And then you get to this age and you go, wait, you know what? It's okay to be thinking about me. And there's plenty of years ahead. So this work-life balance, I don't think it really exists because you're really not trying to achieve balance. You're just trying to live it all. And you do the best you can. Put yourself first for a moment and, and go do those things that you wanted to do. And I think it's a great message for other women that are our age to hear. But I also think it's such a positive message for younger women who are trying to figure out, you know, how do I do all of this? Yeah. And you got to be forgiving of yourself because you're not always, not every day, not every moment, you're not going to hit it. You know, it's not going to be perfect. And so I'm a big Brene Brown fan. She talks about vulnerability and you're enough and really bringing out that that human side. Don't put up the, the armor and try to be perfect and try to make everybody happy. Try to be real. Try to be authentic. Over time, you grow it. You don't, you don't hit it every, every moment. If a person's going to be teaching about leadership, if you're going to be talking about leadership, it's so important to be who you are and be very comfortable with that. So what advice would you give, you know, women in this day and age as they kind of reflect on who they are, what they want to experience, but also, you know, as they age? Ooh, well, first thing is stay healthy because you need that, uh, <laughs> you need to take care of yourself and you need to make that a priority because without that, the other stuff comes too hard. I guess the other advice is don't put so much pressure on yourself. You're enough and you've got to put yourself first and not, not put the burdens of what expectations are on you. So admire you and the work you're doing. And I love the fact that you're bringing this human centric sort of philosophy out to the world. And thank you for doing that because definitely more organizations, more people uh, need that. I really appreciate you having me on this, the podcast and the, the leadership and being a woman in strategic foresight. We need to have more conversations like this. And so I appreciate it, Connie, and thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Rural Futures with Dr. Connie. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Rural Futures. Next up, Christiana McFarland, Director of Research for the National League of Cities. Christy leads the league's efforts to transform city-level data into information that strengthens the capacity of city leaders and that raises awareness of challenges, trends, and successes in the 19,000 cities, towns, and villages the organization serves. I think most of what we've been hearing and, and most of what tends to be understood about urban and rural communities is that they do not operate in the same world at all. And that's not actually the case. When we drill down and we really get a handle on what's happening in urban and rural places, we find, yes, rural communities very much are, are stressed at a foundational level. But they also operate within a regional economy. And we're finding many places where 
rural communities are leveraging their assets to, uh, to build relationships in, in a broader regional economy.